Okay, uh, beach chair. Uh, let's see. Uh, the, oh, the cooler, yeah. Oh, yeah, um, the umbrella. Yeah, totally. Brian, what are you doing? Summertime is right around the corner, Chris. I'm just gathering my beach accoutrement. Yeah, but... Got my beach chair, top of the line. I got new trunks and, and loads of sunblock to keep from burning, and I am ready for the perfect beach-going experience. Yeah, then why did you set all this stuff up in my living room? Well, well, I mean, I can't very well watch movies outside, can I? But don't you worry, this place will be indistinguishable from the beach once the sand arrives. S- s- sand? Okay, fellas, back up the truck and drop the sand! What? No, 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 stop! Stop, no, no! Mmm, it's just not a beach what? until there's sand. Brian! And beer. Alright. Salutations and generally, what's up, Digifiles? It's time for another too legit episode of Digital Noise right here on oneofus.net. This is the Blu-ray DVD review podcast that just hit the east side of our LCD on a mission trying to find the right setting for HD. I'm just laughing at your what's up. What's up? What's up? This is the episode in which Brian is black. Right. I am your host, Brian Salisbury. I got the VHS tapes, and that's a known fact. And I'm joined by a man who is always on the right audio and subtitle track. Christopher Lawrence Cox. Hey, it's really great to be here. All right. Hey, I just flew in from the other side of the couch, and boy, is my butt not really feeling any different. So we got Warren G. and Jackie Mason. That is possibly the weirdest combination of hosts for anything that I could think of. I love it. I kind of want to see that that, uh, Oscars telecast. Yeah, shut up and take my money. Whoever puts that show together. I want to remind you that this show, just like all of our content on One of Us, is available on iTunes if you just search One of Us in the content or in the podcast section. Excuse me. We're also available on Stitcher, which is a thing, uh, and we are also on Twitter at One of Us Net, and on Facebook you can like the website Facebook.com/slash One of Us Net. And I want to remind you just one more time: please do become a subscriber to the website. You can give one to twenty-five dollars every month, or just make a one-time donation. But uh, some cool stuff in line for our subscribers coming up. But for now, now that we've done our housekeeping duties, it's time to reach out to the inner sphere and receive transmissions from you, the listener. It's the part of the show where we crack open that most questionable of coffers we call... The Letterbox. You've got mail. Yes, The Letterbox. Thank you, Torgo. And our first question today comes from Jason Duarte, who says, Is there a character from a film you find yourself quoting often, and what makes that character so significant? Uh, I found this to be an odd question, especially the second half of it. Because isn't it really most quotable characters from movies more about just your sure your love and the impact for that movie and the impact of the line when it was initially said? Well, let me give you my example, and then maybe it'll clarify the question a little bit. My answer to this question is Matt Damon and Rounders. Okay, because not only is that movie very quotable, but it has a lot of like double meaning quotes that not only apply at the poker table but to life as well. And not only that, but I also still play poker. In fact, just uh, last Friday, I won 60 bucks. Wow. So, like, Matt, Rounders, Matt Damon, that sort of weird, like, card table mysticism, like, that still very much applies to things that I do. So, not only do I find that movie very quotable, 
But what's significant about it is that it's it's a life lesson that you learn at cards, and I also still play cards. Oddly, I don't feel like I have that sort of connection with film with any films in the in the sense of that's a specific character I, I quote because of my connection with them. I find I, I get more of that from authors than I do from movies, strangely enough. Uh, although you would think if I was a Kevin Smith fan, I would probably there there would be a connection there. Big, fat, <laughs> lazy, reads a lot of comic books. There you go. But, <laughs> Tweets all day about anal sex. Who's my favorite Silent Bob quote? Oh yeah, yeah profound. One. Yeah, I like that one. Profound. Uh, no, I mean, I guess like really, it's just the standard ones that they are for almost everyone, with the exception of adding in stuff from Big Trouble in Little China and Buckaroo Banzai into my constant rotation list. You know. But on the other hand, Jack Burton is a very significant character in the Western canon. If you think about it. Yeah. Just think about it. I'm not going to explain why. I want you to think about it. Well, I'm thinking about it. No, I'm sorry. That was another Kevin Smith quote. <laughs> <laughs> Our next question comes from John Goley, who asks, "What are your some of your favorite in credit songs to any movie slash TV?" There are so many good answers to this question. It's really just a matter of picking a few. Yeah, that's um, that's what he's asking us to do. Yeah, it's I mean, like literally the task he's put like before every Jackie Chan film from the eighties to the nineties. <laughs> like every single one of them is pretty much the right answer. But I mean, like if past that, if you're talking about TV. You know, I always like Lost because you always have that conclusion, doom, and then dum, 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 the nice theme music at the end, really good. And I always thought Dexter's theme music at the ending credits was really good as well. Yeah. Um, I can't think of TV shows in general that do something really intricate during their credits other than just having good music. Um, but, jeez. Uh, Favorite end credits songs to any movie as well. Um you know, I mean, obviously it's not just good credits, but I guess Seven is probably my all-time favorite. I mean, I'm a big Nine Inch Nails and Trent Reznor fan, mm-hmm. and I think it's a great song that has really interesting credits that go on during it. And then, of course, Ghostbusters. Because yeah. not only do you get, like, the final scene of them all celebrating and being, that's right, New York, woo! <laughs> where he finally gets to kiss Sigourney Weaver when she's not possessed by a demon. Right. And, uh, and she sleeps above her covers for feet above her covers. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess that's my answer. Uh, for me, it would be, movie-wise, it'd be Dr. Strangelove. I love that We'll Meet Again song they play as all the bombs are dropping and it's just nothing but destruction. Uh, it's just a very sweet little, like, uh, juxtaposition that actually, funny enough, I thought they kind of played up a little bit in uh, at the beginning of, um, oh, the remake of The Crazies. Okay. Yeah, they they referenced it uh, in that. And then also the the person who asked this question mentioned Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad's final song is outstanding. It's Bad Fingers Baby Blue, and it's so well, it's so perfect. Just it's just the perfect scene, perfect choice of music. And ever since that episode, I couldn't get that song out of my head. Huh. So I, I, I bought the song, and I've been looking everywhere for that particular uh, vinyl. It's Bad Fingers straight up. And every store I've gone to, they have every Badfinger album except that one. Huh. And I really want that one on vinyl because I love that song so much. So I think I think Breaking Bad is, is a really great example of, of TV that has like a really great in-credit song. I know it's not their every week in-credit right. song, but man... 
it's the pitch perfect ending for hey, that Bad series. Badfinger was awesome. Yeah, they were like, we wish we were the Beatles. Well, they but were funded we're not, by George we're Harrison, pretty good. so pretty yeah. close. Them right? and ELO are like what you do when you've exhausted, you've listened to all the Beatles you can listen to, and you're like, <laughs> I, I want more. It's not enough. Then you go, well, listen to Badfinger and ELO. There's plenty. So. That's very apt. I yeah. like that. Uh, I, we forgot one very, very obvious one that every all my friend friends and fans who will be disappointed knowing me that I didn't say it is my greatest ending songs. Do 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 do. Of course, Buckaroo Banzai. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. That that's that's a great piece of music and a great just montage of people just gathering to walk. That Let's moment, go for a walk. The moment when the first character who died during the movie appears and joins them, and they're like, "Yeah, come on in." It gives me the chills. I don't even know why. It just does. <laughs> it just does. Well, guys, thank you so much for your questions. We're going to slam the lid shut on the letterbox for another week. And dive right into the reviews. And I want to remind you once again that everything we talk about, we will have a little link here on the page that will take you directly to Amazon. You can buy that item. Or if you just get to Amazon via that link, anything you buy benefits the site. And we really do appreciate it. And this week, we're going to start with the legend of Abkiles. Abkiles. <laughs> I'm sorry, Hercules. Sorry, this is the one with Kellen Lutz. It so would be weird confused. if they had cast, like, you know, Andy Dick in the role. <laughs> or, or Woody Allen or somebody. <laughs> I mean, do you really expect me to pick up this sword? It's as big as I am. I don't know what you want me to do with it. Clean out the stables. Don't we have a service? <laughs> <laughs> Twelve labors. I don't like doing one. <laughs> you, well, of course you got to get a big dumb guy. You know, what are you going to do? <laughs> There's a long... And celebrated heritage of Hercules movies getting big, dumb guys to play Hercules in terrible films. And I'm happy to report, guys, that that legacy has continued. And there's also another legacy associated with this film, with Rennie Harlan making big, dumb movies. With Rennie Harlan making big, dumb movies. <laughs> Absolutely. Although this, even for him, is a low. Yeah. I mean, there's some Rennie Harlan films I genuinely really enjoy, despite... Sure. How thoroughly fucking silly they are. I mean, hell, like the biggest box office swap of all time, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, is Cutthroat Island by him. And I actually kind of enjoy that. I movie. do too. <laughs> I thought it was fun. Long Kiss Goodnight. Really fun movie. I, I mean, mean, I agree with you, but the last person you really want to align yourself in this discussion with is me. Because you're going to find there's a lot of movies I'll forgive. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not willing to go so far with some of these. Um, you don't think The Adventures of Ford Fairlane is a great parable about Manifest Destiny? Really, Chris? What about Exorcist the Beginning? Okay, well, that one's terrible. Yeah, well, do we he's had a really terrible round of it since, oh, good lord, 1999? Yeah. And even Jeep's Blue Sea was pretty... Uh... It's a better movie if you, if you watch it from the shark's perspective. I'm just going to say that. Yeah, they should refilm the whole thing from the shark's perspective. It's a, it's a jailbreak movie. It's the Shark Tank Redemption. It's yeah. great. Where Samuel Jackson is the warden and yeah. he gets the best death of all. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, it's, it's, sense. it's it's a better movie that way. Well, but we're talking about The Legend of Hercules. Which, no matter how you look at it, is still a terrible movie. Almost 20 years later, uh, we, he finally makes another movie that we're talking about, I guess. That's the best thing I can say about it. Yeah, I think the last movie of his we talked about was Devil's Pass, which didn't get a theatrical release. I don't even remember It's the one with the people in the mountains. Oh, and the... you saw that. I didn't. Oh, you didn't see it? That's, yeah. that's okay. It's terrible. Uh, this has got Kellen Lutz. 
talk about your big dummies. Coco Lutz. Yeah. Who is, uh, maybe he's not stupid. I don't know. He just looks stupid. He looks stupid. He delivers every line like he's brain dead. And again, I called him Coco Lutz throughout the whole movie because I couldn't figure out what color he was supposed to be. Yeah. He was like gold. Yeah. Which I think is a weird color for a human being. But, you know. I guess everybody got to know him through Twilight. He played one of the various and sundry who gives a fuck vampires in there. Emmett. This, this is a movie that exists to remind us that without a shadow of a doubt, uh, Taylor Lautner's career is over because they gave uh, this movie to Kellen Lutz. Yeah, you're probably right. They went to the next guy and, and on the cast list and went, I don't know, who's the next overly jacked guy with no talent? I'm really sad he was in a relationship with the, our beloved Sharni Vinson for a while. <sighs> I think that's just a shame. Sharni, come on, come baby. On, you, you could can, do better. I mean, I know he looks pretty, but come on. Uh, and yeah, here he has not improved his acting skills one bit in this very loose interpretation of the story of Hercules. In fact, like, I'm not sure this really has a lot to do with the actual story of Hercules. If it does, if it does, it focuses on the least interesting aspect of Hercules' life, which is exactly, I mean, it's, it's reductive, uh, box office filmmaking by committee where it's like, let's just make it a romance. And it's like, yeah, but the two leads have no chemistry together, and Hercules has a lot more interesting things that he did in his life. Nope. Romance. Well, unfortunately, the way they handle it is, let's break them up almost immediately, and then not have them get back together again until almost the very end of the film. And then just start cribbing from other better epics, specifically Gladiator and th- and 300. That's true. Uh, and, I don't know, you just saw this, so maybe you should sum up the plot. More, because I realized <laughs> I had to go back through Wikipedia, and I just saw this a few months ago in the theater. Just saw it! Reviewed it on our site, and I was like, I don't remember the first thing about this fucking movie. I remember I thought it was so bad that it was actually transcended into being kind of entertaining to watch. There are some entertaining aspects on that level, I think. Uh, The movie starts with a great war where King Amphitryon, played by Scott Atkins, who's a guy I absolutely love, and I don't blame him for taking this job. This is probably the biggest film he's been associated with. Good for him. I'm sorry that it's this role. Basically, he, you know, invades the city uh, and challenges the the then king, I think it's Agamemnon, to a to a battle for the for the city, like a one on one battle. He wins. He takes over the city, uh, and then his his betrothed, who he already has one child with, gets god tagged by Zeus, just like bam in the dark. And, and a very, uh, I remember that being very funny. It was it's just so like, silly. Zeus just comes in and goes, "What's up?" Well, what's really weird about it is that throughout the movie, they make reference to Zeus. You never see him, but they also pair any mention of Zeus or any indication of his presence with the sound of a bull. Yeah. Okay, if you know your Greek mythology, he did often appear as a bull to various characters in Greek mythology, but since they don't state that, the person who's watching this who doesn't know anything about Greek mythology is going... What the fuck? Is there a cow in here? Is Zeus a farmer? What is going on? <laughs> That's utterly ridiculous. It's utterly It's like, what the... Wait, someone explain the the bull noises, please. Anyway, so out comes Hercules, who they don't call... Yeah. They don't call Hercules. They call them, like, Outsidious or something. I don't. I couldn't understand what they were saying, so I just called him Outsidious because he was outside all the time. Sure. Um. So, yeah, he's... It's revealed eventually to King Amphitryon, who is ostensibly evil, although I don't really find him to be that bad of a guy. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Um, it's it's revealed that actually his father is is Zeus, so he gets mad and sends 
outside of Cleese, out on this, this ba- like, we're going to put you in the military, and we have this battle we need you to fight. Well, it turns out it's an ambush. He's just trying to kill him. And in the course of that, he doesn't die, but he does get sold as a gladiator, and it's just about him trying to get home. Uh, and uh, There's a whole lot of, of, like, let's try and make a Conan movie in the middle of this going on. And that that is specifically one of the problems I have with this movie, is that King Amphitryon is exactly like every other Greek leader in history. Like, he's going he's going to war with these smaller, like, townships and these smaller city-states to gain resources. What an asshole! It's like, yeah. no, what a Greek warrior king. Like, that's a... Yeah. That's a, like, I didn't find anything remotely evil about him through, like, the first hour of this movie, and yet he's supposed to be our grand villain, whereas, as you mentioned in Conan, we watch a guy butcher an entire village of, like, men, women, and children... It's like, yeah, okay, that's a little bit different than him storming into the city and literally saying to the king, I will spare all of the rest of your soldiers if you'll fight me one-on-one, which is exactly what, uh, what's-his-name did, uh, Achilles did in Troy in a more heroic scene. Yeah. It's the same scene, but we're supposed to believe that Amphitryon is evil for doing it. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't make any sense! I, I don't know what to tell you. This and if, if the villain isn't believable, then I don't I can't really jump on board with the hero. It's not he's not likable or unlikable. Exactly. Except for what the soundtrack cues tell us. You know? And his he's beard kinda his yeah, beard his is likable. You're like, okay, well it is kind of his job to do this stuff. I'm just Exactly I mean his wife, God or not, did clearly fuck somebody else. Yeah. It's like he's not really gonna be in love with the bastard, I'm just saying. <laughs> it's like there's nothing really about him that you look at and go, God, what a dick. You know, I mean, the biggest dick thing he does is try and, you know, separate Hercules from his beloved to some other guy. But Who is the daughter of the Crete, the king of Crete. Yeah. And he wants to marry that woman to his actual son so that there's a unity between the kingdoms. Again, what any fucking Greek ruler would have done at the time. This ain't modern age. Yes. I got to tell you, it would not be appropriate to go, but dad... Yeah, he's not a mustache-twirling villain. He's actually just a very reasonable, logical guy. Yeah, it's a hard time really getting into that stuff there at all, or like the, the the ways it wants you to be motivated. And like I said, worst of all is just that Kellen Lutz, who just has no real screen presence of any kind outside of just being a giant meatbag. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I guess for people who like seeing, the, you know, who, who there's a lot of people out there who do want to watch something like this just for, you know, rippling abs and half-naked yeah. Hercules running around. And good for you if that's all you're looking for in a film i'm sorry i call this a film a movie uh <laughs> that, then that, that that's here i don't know how much there else there is to offer i mean i felt like i was tom servo when i was watching this movie except i had to like be quiet because i was in a movie theater <laughs> i was like there's just too many opportunities to say lines <laughs> yeah and on top of them just ripping off the slow motion from 300 and places it really did not need to be and in fact Places that ended up hurting the movie at points. Like, there's one point where he throws a weapon down, and they slow it down when it hits, and you see it start to wobble, and you go, oh, it's clearly made of rubber. Because you slowed it down, I can now see it's made of rubber. Yeah. So they used it completely ineffectually. And then the whole Gladiator storyline that they just completely ripped off, but didn't do as well, because this is a PG-13 movie. So you have, like, this scene where they're battling these other... uh, these other gladiators, one of whom has the worst haircut. If you're supposed to think this guy is a formidable warrior and he's got hair like buckwheat, like it's just like, dude, come on. Like, like braids that go everywhere up on top of his head. Like he's trying to pick up signals from Sputnik or something. I don't know. But so they're fighting on these rocks and down below are these like spears. And it's like, yeah, if you fall through the, and you'll just fall like three stories onto spears. And of course, as soon as they like fall and are about to hit the spear, they cut away. And I'm just like, you can't, 
have your cake and eat it too. You can't make a PG-13 movie so that all the kids go see it and you make that money and then put this like horrific uh, you know, gladiator scene in there that cuts away and there's no blood. There's no blood anywhere in this movie. Yeah. What the hell? People are getting stabbed and decapitated, but there's no blood. No blood. It's crazy to me. Uh, yeah, Looney Tunes cartoons are more violent than this. Yes. Is, which, to be fair, are pretty violent. Yeah, they are pretty stuff. violent. That's that's what <laughs> fucked me up, for sure. Uh, yeah, this is, like I said, only for laughing purposes. Um, it's a really terrible movie. There's a commentary with Kellen Lutz and Rennie Harlan that apparently oh. is just, they just kind of fade out and get bored halfway through. It. I was going to say, I can't imagine those two being an interesting conversation at all. At all, at all, at all. What do they have to talk about? I like, I like chicken. I like chicken too. Mr. Harlan, do you like protein shakes? I'm a big fan of protein shakes. (laughs) And the other thing that you really, if you're, if you're a Hercules purist, don't watch this movie for a number of reasons. Any number of reasons. But one of the biggest is that the fact that he is Hercules and he's like the strongest man in the world only comes into play twice in the entire movie and they're both in service of 3D gimmicks. Yeah. One time is he's pulling down you know, he's, he's he's chained up and he pulls down the restraints and the chains are still attached to the stones he ripped out. And he's whipping those around in 3D. And the other, he apparently gets... Uh, he, he becomes Whiplash from Iron Man 2 at one point in the movie and has, like, a lightning sword that he's whipping around. But again, throughout the rest of the movie, he could have been any Greek. Yeah, it didn't matter at all that he was Hercules. baffling to me. It's like, okay, this guy's supposed to be super strong, and yet... Shouldn't the battle scenes indicate that when he's fighting people? Like, not just he's a better warrior, but shouldn't he, when he, like, fucking hits somebody's sword with his sword, it just cuts the fuck through that sword and sends that dude flying? You would think. I'm just saying, imagine Colossus from the X-Men fighting Roman warriors. This is what we should be seeing. Totally. I don't know. Yeah. You know, and I don't have any more confidence about the other upcoming Hercules film either. Well, yeah, Brett Ratner's involved. I don't have a lot. I don't have any more confidence in Brett Ratner than I do in Rennie Harlan. Nope. Anyway. Less even. Yeah. And that trailer, by the way, for the upcoming Hercules with The Rock is awful. It's going to hurt. It I ends think. with him going, I am Hercules. It's like, yeah, the title told us that. But, <laughs> but thank thank you for that, that impotent shouting. Anywho, skipping away from the legend of Hercules, watch the Kevin Sorbo show instead. Um, Prince Killian and the Holy Grail is the one movie on the list this week. That I did not see. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that, Christopher? <sighs> this is a... <laughs> We're just getting the shit out of the way early. <laughs> Spanish adaptation of a very popular series of Spanish comic books that were created in the 1950s by a writer named Victor Mora and uh, Miguel Ambrosio. Isn't that cool? I wish my name was I Ambrosio. I like that. That's a great name. Uh, Zargoza. And apparently it went on till from 1956 to 1968 being the most popular Spanish hero comic ever. Uh, it was selling at one point more than 170,000 copies every week. Jesus. Apparently he was very influenced by Prince Valiant. Basic idea is just this guy. He's like the heroist hero that ever heroed in the 12th century. <laughs> he's like a knight. That he has, only eats hero sandwiches. Right. He has two companions. One is a... Like, he looks like he's 14, but I guess he's supposed to be, like, 18 or 19. Like, a very slight, small, but very fast-moving guy named Crispin. And then this huge dude, bruiser guy with a giant club named Goliath. And they go around... uh basically fighting for the right of everyone across the world for justice and freedom against bullies and tyrants, yada, yada, yada. Okay. Anyway, (laughs) uh, which brings us to this film, uh, apparently also called 
Captain Thunder and the Holy Grail. <laughs> Captain Thunder well, a, and the Holy Grail. It's a literal Grail. translation of his name. El Capitan Trueno, apparently, is his actual name. Um, that just I, sounds like a, the, the translation of Thor. I don't like, know. I don't know where Prince Killian came from, because apparently when I watched this movie, he was not, in fact, a prince (laughs) at all. Uh, But he, oh, oh God, let's see. It starts off during the Crusades, which were supposed to be rooting for the Templar Knights in the Crusades. You're like going, you're pretty much mercilessly, brutally murdering people in their own homeland because of some religious, like, thing that you think you have a right to anyway i'm not going to get into that no i mean it's that's like historically not the best idea of the crusades uh but he ends up getting out of there because he's sent back to spain to go on a special mission but not before a dying old man in a prison that they've freed all the prisons and gives him a a cup and he's trying to tell him look this cup is special you got to take it to these protector knights and he's like, whatever, old man, just, you know, you're obviously been in here too long. But of course, the cup in question is the Holy Grail. And there's an evil guy who wants to take it. And I'm not entirely sure what something about the eclipse and giving himself ultimate power. He's never he's as many religious fanatics are somewhat vague about what's going to happen when he achieves his goals. But uh, of course, the. Prince Killian won't have any of it. And uh, along the way, he's saddled with this Viking princess who is admittedly extremely hot. Uh, but that's about as far as that matters. Um, <laughs> and has to save her from trouble. Sometimes she saves him for troubles. It's a really poor excuse. I mean, really, Hercules is better than this. Which is, I mean, it really What? Is. This is, at least it's more entertaining to watch. This just drags on and on. It's almost two hours long. And it's just huge long scenes of just panning across the environment and like people taking long pauses between when they talk and why are we watching this trite rip off of a thousand things that have come before there is absolutely no reason to watch it terrible fucking cg um i mean really bad Ooh, cg yeah that that's true in the hercules one as well i didn't mention that but, but that looks like the best. That looks like the first time you saw Jurassic Park compared to this. <laughs> <laughs> this is more like sub Babylon five level uh, graphics here. Just, just terrible. <laughs> it's. I mean, the worst thing is it's just boring, and it's a sword and like sorcery movie. How do you make that this boring? I was thinking back to the old Roger Corman films that mm. were going on a shoestring budget that really didn't care if they were good or not. That were a hundred times more entertaining than this piece of garbage. Yeah. I have no idea why Shout Factory picked this one up. Wow, no idea because it's it's just it's just terrible. Well, we have another Shout Factory title that we're going to talk about, but first I feel like we need a palate cleanser here, so why don't we talk about Star Trek Enterprise Season 4. Okay, here's where I get surprised, because you put this on your list of things that you watched. Yep. You watched this? I did. I, I mean, actually, I here, here was my thinking on this. Yes, I have seen very little of the post-original series Star Trek, and yes, this is the first of Enterprise that I've ever watched. Yes. But there was something sort of noteworthy about the fact that it was the last season of the very last Star Trek show. Yeah. So it represented the end of the era of Star Trek on television. In many ways, except for the very beginning of this, you don't really have to have watched much of what came before it either. And that's that's what I was re- that's what I wanted to know. And I was I was pleasantly surprised to find that I didn't have to really be very familiar with 
Yeah, as you said, like the first episode is a cliffhanger from the end of the third season. Yeah. But even that, like, they explained enough in the prologue that I could, you know, I could follow it, and I love the whole like, uh, like alien Nazis and and <laughs> gangsters being the resistance and like this world, this alternate World War Two timeline. Like, I was like, yes, you have got me right from the get go. Well, this whole season is really the love letter that fans were expecting in the first place when the show started to air. To the original series, because this is a prequel to the original series. Um, it also is the first season that had a new and last that had a new showrunner. The first three were the, you know, Brandon Braga, who was pretty much the showrunner throughout a lot of the season, previous seasons of Star Trek. Uh, but he had just said, look, I've, he had run season three, which was one big, incredibly difficult to tell story and said, I'm done. And originally, season four was supposed to be just the Nazi story all the way through. That was his plan. But Manny Cotto, who was realizing the show was in so much danger, he was going to be, you know, they were lucky to get this one extra season. Right. Was like, no, it's time to give the fans what they wanted in the first place. And so they started doing mini arcs. Yeah, mini arcs that tie directly into the bigger stories that have occurred along the line of the original Star Trek, including, of course, the Mirror Universe. We get to see a whole, like, was it two or three episodes? I can't remember of the Mirror, Dark Mirror. I believe it's two episodes and then it goes into the finale of the series which is such a nice little tribute and tie-in to next generation yeah uh there's uh they they do a thing about how like the big question they finally answer the big question why are the klingons in the original star trek have flat foreheads and the later ones have you know the ridged foreheads there's a there's a whole series run in here specifically about that that also ties into an earlier thing in this season as well about the uh the clones not clones but uh the uh, uh genetically enhanced people you know the, the con, augments the augments mm-hmm. that t- ties all into that they find a way to make that all part of one bigger story and all fit neatly within you know the, the realm of the the Star Trek continuity I was a little irritated with the the, the that they felt they needed to put Brent Spiner in the role as his what group, like. Yeah. Of his creator's great-great-grandfather or something. I was like, you know, I love Brent Spiner, but I thought it was a little distracting. Maybe. Maybe because I didn't watch as much Next Generation. I didn't find it as distracting, and I thought he did a good job with it. And I liked the way they kind of uh, tied into some Space Seed stuff and, and kind of n- and nodded to Khan without, you know, just flat out doing another Khan story. And uh, I will say this. Ortsy and Kurtzman are big fans of this season. I can guarantee you that because if you watch this final season, so much of the plot of Star Trek into darkness is scattered throughout this season. Mm. Like little tidbits here and there, like the, the specific way they do the space seed story. The fact that they actually brought in Peter Weller at one point to be a villain in the series. Yeah. And like all of these other, like, like torpedoes and stuff, the Klingons. And I was just like, yeah, this is the entire plot of Star Trek Into Darkness just scattered out throughout this season with Space Seed there to kind of fill in the in the cracks, which I found very interesting. And I really did like the finale a lot. I, I was a little unsure of how they were going to wrap everything up, and it seemed like at first I thought, well, the connection to Next Generation is great, but it does kind of jump over a huge chapter of the mythology. But then the very end of the show kind of brought that in as well, and I was like, okay... Now it's all just kind of nicely tied up together. I mean, to me, somebody who's watched all the way through this, I did not care for the last episode. And I thought the season was okay. The third season was much better, but there's some good, solid stuff in here. But I thought that the last episode felt like a... Well, in fact, it was about Brandon Braga coming back and saying, no, 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 I'm doing the last episode. It was exactly what happened, sure. even though they already had a plan for how to wrap up the story. And the last episode's not even really about the characters of Enterprise. 
Which no, it, it's not at all. And it's like, it's fan service for a different show. <laughs> exactly. I was like, wait, mine <laughs> with a fat Riker and Deanna Troy. I didn't in. want to bring that up, but yeah, it it, it appears it, very obvious that it had been a while since the end of Next Generation because Riker, who is supposed to go directly from the end of this episode to his meeting with Picard and the pilot of Next Generation, and right. I'm like. Is there, like, nothing but a field of treadmills between there and this meeting? Because, <laughs> Jesus, dude. Um, yeah, I do like that you find, you know, you get to see some of the stories continue. But there's also, like, a completely unnecessary drama porn death of a character that I was like, seriously? Because it was one of those completely avoidable situations. That you're like, why would he do that when... Okay. That's how they learn about red shirts, Chris. That's how they learn. It was just so out of character. It was like, no, I don't think that's what would have happened in this scenario. I will say that the one thing I really didn't like about anything this season, and I I don't know if it's the same all the way through, but dear God, the theme song is awful. Oh, it's so bad. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, the the only time at any point that the theme song is any good on here at all is when they do the two-part uh, Dark Universe, because they, they give it a proper Star Trek opening, yeah. where it's like, okay, this would be what, if this was a Dark Universe Star Trek show, what it would be like, with more stuff blowing up and a theme that's orchestral, like it yes. should be, like instead it should of that be. terrible, terrible fucking pop song. Yeah, oh, it's it's not it so good. Much. Um, like I said, there's there's good and bad points in the season. It's It's a shame that it was the end. I felt like, in a lot of ways, that affected... What didn't work in the season was because it felt a little rushed. Like, we know this is it, so we're kind of throwing everything we got at the screen at once. But the they made this a great set. It really looks beautiful. There's a ton of extra features on here, including a lot of discussion about, like, this is the first Star Trek series since the original one that was canceled. Like, the others came to the end that they wanted to come to. Got to, yeah. okay, well, we're done. We're, we, we've had our seasons and we're going to finish out. This is the first one they wanted to keep going and we're not allowed to. Despite and, several apparently different campaigns by fans to save the show. Oh, yeah. And the fact that it was actually doing better in the ratings and another show at the same time that was being lauded all over the world, Battlestar Galactica. So it was like, really? We're doing better than that show that's, like, on the cover of major magazines. I don't really, <laughs> I don't really get what happened there. Um uh, but there's a, a good amount of extra features talking to about everyone involved Lots of about extras. the situation. And of all the seasons, this probably has the most satisfying bonus features, really, altogether. Just covering every single aspect of production you can imagine. So I got to say, overall, I do recommend this. I mean, if nothing else you get to see in the, the Mirror Universe, they go on a classic era Star Trek ship, dress up in the classic era Star Trek uniforms and are like piloting basic for all kinds of purposes the original Enterprise. I'm like, it's okay, so that good. was that I really did want to see that. Yeah, so. totally. Yeah. Well it's Bacula to the future for that series because uh, it goes from there into the because it's a prequel. See what happened there. <laughs> I will say it's very accessible. I can attest to that. It's a very accessible season and the last uh of the again that represents the end of the era of Star Trek on TV. Indeed. So, yeah, it's also my pick of the week, just because there's there's not a lot else this week. So. <laughs> not for me, but we'll keep going. Wow. Right okay. Yeah. I, I'm I'm. Mm, this is kind of a I coin flip. I haven't decided yet. You haven't decided. Okay, I was going to say it's a coin flip. It's as a to tough what's week. Left. It's a tough week. So we're going to move on from there to the other shout factor release, which is Dead Shadows. Hey, here's a hint. It ain't my pick of the week. Is not going to be this. I didn't think it was that bad. Ugh. I didn't like. I didn't love it, but I didn't think it was that bad. Although I did realize halfway through that I had seen this movie before. Had you? Yeah, I think it got submitted for some festival. I was on the. The uh, real horror is in knowing you have to sit through this film a second time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Oh my god. This was like the worst ripoff of uh, Night of the Comet I have ever seen. <laughs> I mean, it's just... Wow. Did they even have a script for this? I'm not sure they did. So this movie is about a, a guy who is kind of a kind of a loner geek who during there's there's this comic event. Comic event? Comet comic event. event. Oh, I know that movie. Comic Con is actually a comic event. Uh but no, there's this event involving a comet that is gonna pass by the earth and some people are freaking out saying it's the end of the world, other people are like, It's a comet, let's go party, yada yada. It's ex- you're right, it's the exact same setup as Night of the Comet. Um, but what ends up happening is that people who have seen the comet and start to change, and then there's like these aliens that are infecting people, and it's yeah. The more I think about it, the more I'm like, you know, it's not a very good movie. No. Uh, I, you know, it's it's just it's it kind of just follows. People. Who cares what happens to that? <laughs> wow, uh, <laughs> no, the letters we're going to get now. I'm kidding. Uh, yeah, so it's it's a French sci-fi horror film. It's very low budget, very contained it's a very small scale film um i don't know i found certain things to enjoy about it i actually thought i actually thought the lead was was pretty good and i i thought there was a decent amount of chemistry between him and and the girl that he was uh barely sharing any screen time with (laughs) still when they were on screen together i thought they did it they did a good job but look he's they try to set up this weird thing with him like his parents at the last comet went crazy and killed each other and for some reason he's got like this like, I guess it's supposed to be connected to that, but he's, like, totally terrified of the darkness to the point that sometimes, even when it's not that dark, he'll just take a lamp and put it right up next to his eyes to make himself feel better. Which I guess is supposed to connect to some way, like, be an advantage against these creatures, but it's never quite clear what that advantage is yeah. or what that has to do with anything. Look, Chris, the reason I like this movie is because I want the guy's apartment, all right? <laughs> he's got Shaun of the Dead action figures. Yeah, he he's got a, a quarter-scale Slimer. He's got the Italian poster for Escape from New York. But there's no question the people who made this are big fans of a lot of other considerably better films. I can't believe I just realized I like this movie because of the guy's apartment. He, You know, there's lots of tiny pieces of other films that are thrown in completely ineffectively, but just like almost like specific nods to those films. Films. The biggest problem is that you're never really quite like a mo- some movies can pull off the whole you don't really know what the horror is quite well and make it scary. Here it just felt like they never finished writing the script where it's like, well, sometimes the aliens make people's faces turn into oatmeal and melt. And that was kind of cool though. It makes them have grow tentacles out of their body and become alien things. But sometimes people with tentacles out of their body are still human and control those tentacles. And sometimes, look, what is it? What the fuck? I don't. And it comes to an ending that's sort of like, figure it out for yourself. I don't want to. <laughs> I've got shit to do. I'm I got, busy. I, got, I can't write your script for you. <laughs> You're supposed to, by the time it's on Blu-ray, it. it's supposed to be done. It should be finished. Yeah, but that face melting, though. <laughs> the first face melt was cool looking. I will hand that yeah. to you. But most of the effects in this movie are not that great. There's a scene no. with like this, the only, strangely only topless scene in a movie that has a party in it filled with people dressed in S&M gear. Um, there's a woman, like half woman, half evil spider thing that looks absolutely terrible. And it's a weird scene because yeah. she's like, like kind of loving on this dude who's like no reason that he should respond in that way. Really? I don't. Yeah. Know what? I, this movie, it's a mess. Fine. I agree. 
I just like the guy's apartment, okay? I thought I the liked, face melting was cool. I liked the lead. I liked the guy's apartment, too. I did like the lead. And I like his apartment. I thought it was one of those where he was much better than the material he was given to do, and I will hand him that. Um, and there's potential. He, but I guess it's so frustrating because there's so much potential. There's so much you keep waiting for this to turn really good, and it never does. And I guess it's it should be telling that I said we watched it for a festival, not that it played that festival. Yeah, yeah. So. I wouldn't have picked this one to play. I, I do find it funny, though, that they're one of the special features and this is a very paltry release in my opinion and as far as special features go although i don't know what else i would have wanted um is the unfinished visual effects and i was just like how can you tell um it's like weren't they unfinished in the film yeah <laughs> i don't quite understand i don't think shout factory as great as they are at restoring you know, these older films and these sort of cult classic films. But they still aren't the best in the world at picking films from festivals to release that are new. And the problem is that they're adding those, like this and Beneath, are both films that they've added to the Scream Factory label. And I'm like... And Prince Killian and the Holy Grail. That's also Scream Factory? Yeah. Well, oh, it's Shout Factory. Oh, yeah. This still. is this is specifically their Scream Factory label. And I'm like, there's part of me that's like, you're, you're corrupting the purity of the Scream <laughs> Factory line by adding stuff like this and Beneath. And I'm like, until you get somebody on your staff... That really knows how to find the good stuff. They need to hire a really good and extremely experienced acquisitions person and not just somebody whose entire experience is in, you know, advertising, marketing, or production. You right. Know? They need to hire someone who knows something about film to get on there. Hello, I actually could use some work. Just oh, okay. So this, <laughs> this entire review is just a pitch for Chris. So it just... Well, now that it occurs to me that yeah. it could be viewed in that way, then sure, why not? So really our website's mascot is a bluemonster.com. <laughs> Anyway, that was Dead Shadows. Moving on quickly from there to Labor Day, which is this movie about babies, kind of. Babies? I thought that's what it was going to be about. When I when I saw the uh, title and I saw the cover, I was like, oh, it must be about, like, I'm not ready to be a dad. Oh, crazy, I have a kid. Now and, you see what happens when you tell puns all the time. Yes, it's, I do. It's affecting the way you look at reality. That being said, I wasn't terribly far off. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't terribly far off with this this drama uh starring the uh Kate Winslet and Josh Brolin. At, so Kate Winslet plays this woman who has had some things happen in her life and shortly after her husband leaves her her husband leaves her, she starts to go a little crazy. Like she's not like full on insane, but like she just has a lot of, she doesn't she's agoraphobic. She has like she has shakes and she just, you know, she she's a loner. She's become a hermit. Uh but she has custody of their their one child who goes and visits his dad on the weekends. But during a, a shopping trip, they actually, you know, make one of their rare excursions outside of the house. They run afoul of Josh Brolin, who says, you need to give me a ride. And you need to take... He's, he's very th imposing and threatening. And basically, something has clearly happened to him. He's got, like, uh, a wound in his side. And he's limping. His ear is bleeding. And he's just like, you need to get me out of here. You need to take me to your house. Turns out he's an escape con. And is just going to kind of lay low there for a while until he can continue on. And the rest of the movie is just about the sort of relationship that develops between both Kate Winslet and the ex-con and this young boy who's her son and the ex-con. Yeah. And how that eventually plays out. Um, this is actually directed by Jason Reitman, who, except for his last film, I've enjoyed almost everything that he pretty Was much his last film Young done. Adult? Yes. Thank you. Everybody else loves that movie, and I don't understand it. I really, really, really did not like that movie. I don't understand how a movie where a character makes no change, whatever, it remains that this obnoxious stasis throughout the whole thing can be considered a good film. It can be considered a good film if it's funny as hell all the way through. I guess that's true. But 
It's not. It's not. <laughs> so, I don't know. I like the Patton Oswalt sequence. Sure. But in this film, this is a very different type of film than anything Reitman's done. And it's for a very different type of audience, really. I mean, this is the attempt to make a smart romance film. Quite yeah, frankly. a Southern Gothic romance almost. Yeah. Uh, and I think that it works more than it does it. And I think that's largely due to the strengths of the two lead actors who turn in really dedicated performances in both of these roles. I find it interesting the way the tension works in here, that it really does kind of, you know, you're like, okay, this guy, Josh Brolin, comes in, and he is, like, super dad in the house. You know? Yeah. He's like, this ex-con is a better dad than than their actual, his actual, the kid's actual dad. Yeah, he's, like, a genuinely, he's, like, the most awesome dad ever. He's everything John Hamm's, Don Draper wishes he could be in yeah. the first two seasons of Mad Men. <laughs> uh, you know, and yet he is indeed an escaped and injured con who's wanted for murder. Uh, and you, you know, you spend a lot of the movie wondering what is this guy going to do to these people? Is he actually crazy? But at the same time, you can't help but feel just like, you know, putting the audience into the Kate, Kate Winslet shoes, like how she does, like, look, you start to fall for the guy. You know, he's supremely confident. He's supremely competent. And, you know, he treats the kid great. He treats her great. You just keep waiting for the other shoe to drop. The real question in this movie is, does that shoe in fact drop? And if so, where does it land? And is it right side or down? Does it need scuffing? I'm yeah. just saying. I mean, what I liked most about this movie is sort of the things it had to say about the nature of loneliness mm. and where we will seek, seek comfort and companionship when we are at our lowest point. Yeah. And I thought that was really interesting. I thought the fact that this situation came up and, and actually presented itself as an ideal to this family kind of showed the dire straits that they were in to begin with. Um, If I had a complaint with the movie, I just felt like the tension that you were mentioning, which was so present at the beginning and so very, you know, driving, kind of dissipated, like, probably about the second act, I would say. Like, it kind of sure. went away, which is just the nature of the way the story is told. Yeah, I think it's supposed to. At it, that it, no, point. it totally is. Yeah. It totally is. But the problem is that it also started to lose me at that point mm. because it got to a point where they were so unique, like, so very Ozzy and Harriet, and it, they were so mm. happy that I was just like, I don't really get you guys anymore. And then, of course, they introduce a new complication, sure. of course, because they're going to... Because with any romance, it's like, everything's great until it's not. I guess it worked for me because of the nature of that complication that was inevitably going to come along. I was like, okay, this is great. And I also was feeling so good for her. She's a really nice woman who is sheltered and fr a frightened little mouse who doesn't deserve... The, who deserves more. Mm -hmm. And you feel... You want her to be happy. You really want her to be happy. And you want to find a way for this to work, even though there's no way it possibly can work. Sure. Uh, and I guess that's what kept me going through that because I realized enjoy this brief bit of happiness you ha that she has because it's going away. I think the alternate title of this film was James Vanderbeek Ruins Everything. Yeah, right? Damn it, James Vanderbeek. <laughs> you ruin everything. Every movie you come in on now, you're always just a ah, wet blanket. Ah, Buzzkill Vanderbeek is what they call you. I don't want your presence in my movie. <laughs> You know, it's funny. When I initially reviewed this, uh, every, I think pretty much everyone else was condemning it. And I was like, I'm sorry. I really, really like this movie. I don't think it's a bad movie. I, I, I you know, it, it grabbed me at certain points. And then it just kind of like the <laughs> the romance I had with the movie kind of fizzled out. But <laughs> that being said, I would never go so far as to say it's a bad movie. Again, the performances alone are enough to carry it. I think Reitman does a great job, man not only with the two leads, but managing a cast that has very small parts for some very big actors. Yeah. 
I won't, I won't say any more because I feel like it might be a little bit spoilery, but there are some, some very recognizable actors in this movie who are in it for a very short amount of time and where with a bad director you might say something like they were very underused. They're used perfectly well and they're, they're uniquely balanced and I think that's, that's a testament to Reitman as a director. Very true. Well, anyway, next we're, we're oh, I hate to tell you this, Brian. Oh, please don't say it. I'm just going to push the button because it's blanking. No, the d- button is blanking. Look, just because they, the other dimension is calling doesn't mean you have to respond. The big red shiny button. Don't touch it. Don't you. Damn it, Chris. I think it worked, Richard. Oh. I think it worked. I pressed the button again. Oh. I think we've, we've intercepted the signal of the alternate digital noise broadcast. Did, did the dimensions collapse again? I think they did. But we, need, you- we need better joists. Uh, joists? Yeah, keep them up. Stop collapsing in on each other. Is it, I thought that was like like a slang for joysticks. No, no, no. It's an engineering thing. Oh, uh, we'll see. That's why I don't know because I, I have no practical knowledge. Ah, well, uh, <laughs> well, that's because it's the parallel dimension. Uh, well, I don't. From what I've heard, it doesn't sound like it transfers to that dimension either. Oh. Yeah. What are you gonna do? No welding kits for you for Christmas. No, certainly not. That sounds like a terrible idea but what we do have is a bunch of movies to look at Hooray! i don't know if these movies exist in their universe or not but they sure do in ours and i say we just jump into it what do you say richard uh i got my water wings on <laughs> well let's take a look into uh the history of our uh, our youth back when we used to be little punk rockers so long ago <laughs> so long ago so long so think you remember when you were like all other music is invalid <laughs> Still true. I'm not sure that it's true. Your choices are wrong. <laughs> We're like, punk is the only way. Hey. It turned out not to be true. But eh. you know what? Nobody personified punk, arguably, at least from London, better than The Clash, nope. who were one of the just great bands that also introduced a lot of people, oddly enough, to like reggae and ska music as well. So good that Ramsid spent two decades ripping everything off from them. Yes, yeah. they did. They were like, we're like The Clash, but with, I guess, more expensive production? With a bigger label? Yeah, more groupies. That'll do it. Uh, anyway, this new movie, The Rise and Fall of the Clash from Shout Factory, is... Oddly titled, since it's really just the fall of the Clash. (laughs) It's like the rise is only mentioned, summed up in like 30 seconds in the intro, pretty much. Yeah, I mean, this is is the Clash. uh, In some ways, they've already peaked. I mean, because this is one of these weird things about it coming out from a British perspective, because I'm from the parallel Britain, Hmm. uh, where we still have airships. Uh Um, And still control America? uh, (laughs) Control is such a loose term. (laughs) We cannot be controlled. (laughs) (laughs) Like a disobedient dog peeing in the corner. (laughs) Um, But, you know, in the UK, combat rock is seen as, oh, they've sold out, they've gone corporate, where kind of in America, it's like, you know, this is the the clash of the height of their powers. They've gone past all the Sandinista nonsense of, like, totally overblown and ridiculous. So this is kind of, you know, there's a little bit of a cultural difference, but this is really when they were commercially at their biggest. And this is a documentary about how they managed to completely screw all of that up, throw everything away politically, musically, creatively, personally, and, and just faceplant. And it's a, it's a really fascinating documentary about how you can really be positioned to take over the world and change things and through personal hubris and incompetence. Uh, and bad management, uh, yeah, really just throw all that away. Well, it's uh, I thought the most apt comparison to really understand what's going on here was that point they're saying, you know, the difference in personalities that was going on here between Mick and Joe, uh, you know, who were really the two creative forces in the band, 
like was very similar to the differences between Keith Richards and Mick Jagger. Oh yeah. Who just kept going because there was lots of money in it. But that's rock and roll. This is punk. And there was this sort of undercurrent going on through Joe specifically where he was like, I feel like we've betrayed everything we stand for by being successful, which is one of those things. One of the reasons why punk isn't really a thing anymore. Yeah. (laughs) Because it was like a self-defeating game. (laughs) Where did you plan on going with this, punk? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and it's it's really a complicated, the balancing out between, you know, Mick and Joe and the fact that, you know, Mick is still going, we can expand this. We can do something different. We can change the music we're listening to. And he's the one who really, you know, Joe Strummer is the guy who goes, you know, we're a, a basically fast and hard reggae band. Yeah. And Mick Jones is going, no, we have to be about the music of the street. And he's the one who starts in- introducing, you know, the hip hop and the, uh, and the um, you know, rap influences. Yeah. And... Then, of course, when he leaves and goes off and forms big audio dynamite, he takes all that with him. And sure. you're like, you suddenly, and you really see, like, how much the, the band was about the balance of a handful of people. And when Joe got too much influence, when the manager in particular got in Joe's ear and said, you don't need these guys, it all goes to hell. And there's a lot of great archive footage. There's a lot of um, modern talking heads who disagree very pointedly on... You know, exactly what happened and exactly who's to blame. Um, but they all seem to agree the manager was a Machiavellian oh, prick. Yeah, but it's the question <laughs> is whether he was a Machiavellian prick who was the best thing for the band or the worst thing for the band. Yeah, you know, Because you know, they, you know, I mean, the Rolling Stones had, you know, uh, Andrew Logwatz's face who, you know, was a Machiavellian prick but was the best thing possible for the band. Right. Brian Epstein, you know, Machiavellian but still the best thing possible but for the in, Beatles. In this this per- guy is, is, is a toxic influence because he goes, Joe Strummer is the only thing. And he misses the point that Joe Strum was not the only thing. Well, the, the Mick didn't like him from the get-go, it seems like. And I don't think Mick liked most people. That's though. true. <laughs> but uh, he didn't like Mick either. And he was seemed to be constantly whispering in Joe's ear. And at one point, Mick managed to talk the rest of the band into firing him, only for him to have to reluctantly let him back. Yeah. At one point. At which point it was like, this sells it. It's like, well, that was it. That's yeah. kind of the end of the clash right there when he comes back and Mick is left powerless and knows it and is like, okay, well, why am I still here? Yeah. I mean, it, it's a it's a fascinating case study in so many ways. And it's a beautifully constructed documentary. The only thing really wrong with it is the name is wrong. It should just be called The Fall, the the fall, fall of the, the Clash. clash. Because yeah. it, it's, there's nothing about how this band from, you know, from working class well bits of working class london and joe strummer who you know his career has been so well documented but he's not working class i mean this is mm-hmm. the well-traveled son of diplomats who's you know been all around the planet and it kind of how and that was the tension you know he's got mick who really is this guy who just goes i will fight you because that's what i'm uh, you know i had to do to survive and joe who's like I've been to to marrakesh and there's this weird tension between the two yeah that works so well and then you add you know Topper as well, who is a phenomenal drummer. And I think that's one of the things this documentary does so well, is it does say this was a band of great musicians. They didn't start off as great musicians. They got good, and there was something innate about them. And then you take any one of them out of it, and there's a weakness. The band doesn't work in quite the same way. Even if you mm. replace them with people who are technically good, and the, the wonderful way, you know, every time they replace somebody... It turns out the replacement is actually a prog fan who's kind of yeah. lurking around in the Secretly background. Secretly playing going, Genesis. Yeah, yeah. You know, riffing on early Floyd and looking at the other guys and going, Shh, don't tell them, don't tell them. And that was really fascinating to, to see. But yeah, I mean, I was really 
I was I was really impressed by this as a documentary. It's really fascinating. I don't think I was quite as taken as you were, and I can say why. It's two reasons, really. One, it's hurt by the fact that, well, obviously Joe Strummer was not capable of being around for it because yep. he is long since dead. Uh, and the lack of particip- participation of said manager, Bernie Sanders, is that yeah. his name? And uh, the drummer, Topper, as well, who was, you know, I mean, was the first one to say, I'm the getting the fuck out of here. I feel like the whole thing ends up somewhat biased towards Mick's point of view, and I often wonder what it would be like if we could kind of see that other side of it more accurately represented, because Mick's the one who's, like, the talking head we see the most in here. And, I mean, whereas he's somewhat, you know, self-depreciating in a sort of charming way, it never feels like it's – it always – by the end, it feels like, yeah, Mick was right all along. And is that actually true, or is that this documentary's take on it? The other thing is that I feel like it's a little longer than it needs to be, considering what a short period of time it's actually focusing on. At points, I was like, you're belaboring the point, guys. We get it. Go to the next thing. But there's a lot of great footage in here. There's, uh, you know, some uh, snippets of great performances. And it is really interesting to see, like, you know, just a classic story of how a band that by all means should have been on top of the world just self-destructed in such a huge way. And I, I think I, I like it in part because I've seen so many terrible music docs recently that it was actually relieving to see something which is a documentary which happens to be about a band. Hmm. Rather than a music documentary where they're going, people will buy it because it's that band. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, in a way, I'm, I'm more okay with this being a little bit more from Mick's point of view because we've had so much of the canonization of Joe. Sure. You know, and let's face it, I mean, I know this is heresy in some quarters. The Mescaleros weren't that good. <laughs> and people go, this is some of the best stuff of his career. And I'm like, no, I'm sorry. You're going to put this up against give him enough rope? No. Are you high? This <laughs> is ridiculous. <laughs> when it was good, it wasn't, you know... I thought clash. his performance in Straight to Hell was the best thing in his career. Uh, there are people who would argue that. <laughs> they may not be in this room, but there are people who will argue Joe Strummer and Fat Courtney Love. Oh, God. <laughs> no, I mean, literally, for those who haven't seen it, Fat Courtney, pre, pre-Hole, pre-Kurt Cobain, pre-Heroin. Or maybe. Uh, no, admittedly. Really? Okay. Yeah, I think we're okay. I think, I think we're legally safe on that one. All right, fair <laughs> enough. Uh, yeah, but I think this is really worth checking out. Even if you're you're not fam- that familiar with The Clash, it's just kind of a universal story of how easy it is to go for things to go wrong in a project that seems so right with competing personalities. <laughs> All right, so our next movie up is These Birds Walk, which is the latest from Oscilloscope Studios. Now, I actually did not get to see this, and because I forgot, it <laughs> ended up in my stack underneath something I had already seen, and so oh. I just... I, didn't you see need that. to rectify that. Yeah, well. This is a a really... It, it's the, the polar opposite uh, when it comes to documentaries. This is um, set around a uh, an orphanage in Karachi in Pakistan. Uh, but the kids there aren't really orphans. They're runaways. And it's been set up by this one old guy, um, uh, Abdul Sata Eddy. And... You know, he just was this guy who just decided, I'm going to start a charitable trust that's going to look after these kids. And, you know, he's, you know, incredibly ancient and wizened. But when the kids arrive, the first thing he does is he personally bathes them. Yeah. You know, and it's... Which would be creepy in America. It would be creepy in America. But he's like... (laughs) and And he said, you know, there's... Nobody asked me whether I should be doing this. I just do it. Because nobody else is going to. Nobody's going to look after these kids. Um... And the narrative is it's partially about him. It's partially about one of the ambulance drivers who works for him, uh, who 
Um, he all his job also involves picking up dead bodies, because the other part of the thing the charity does is it uh, when uh, people die and they're indigent or their family can't afford the ceremonial costs of a funeral, so the wrapping of the body in very traditional ways, the salting of the corpse. If they can't afford that, they do it for them. Hmm. Um, and that's the actual profit-making side because they get, they do get a certain amount for that from, from certain sources. So, the, and then there's this small child who ran away from his family. Um, How small are we talking about? He's about six. Okay, it's very small. And you really see that you know Karachi is unbelievably poverty-stricken. They start heading outside of the town and. You know, families of 30 living in a house which is just a concrete block, no water, no sanitation, no electricity, there's not even a roof. This really could be out of the mid-17th century in rural Pakistan. The poverty is grinding. It is beautifully shot. It is very moving. And it is one of the most efficiently edited films I think I've ever seen. Efficiently? It's so precise and it, it, there's no point like with the, with the clash where it kind of like goes oh we're going to go off in a diversion it's like it all adds up every moment is there and individual scenes can be quite long there's this beautiful sequence of the boy and there's this other kid that he, he shares a, a, a sleeping area with and it's just these two you know really hard six year olds they, you know, the world has no surprises left for them. There, there is no such thing as innocence in their lives. And it's just them talking and interacting and saying, well, you know, I could beg and I, you know, if I wanted to, and I have in the past, and people would give us money for rent, and, you know, I'm going to do this, and I'm get, we're going to run away to this place. And, the, you know, they care, the camera's there. And it's just this amazing sequence. Hmm. Um, and there's about 20 minutes of deleted scenes, really? which are completely finished. And there is obviously a, you know, 95-minute version of this somewhere. And they just, the, the filmmakers looked at it and went, we don't need it. We can tell our story in 75 minutes precisely, elegantly. It is beautiful but depressing at the same time. Um, it's, you know, a story of hope in the most depressing of circumstances. I mean, you look at this and, it, you know, you would get off the plane and go, oh, no, I'm out. The fact Bye. that there's anybody there who's willing to de- dedicate his whole life yeah. to helping the hopeless like that yeah. in a place where he, he himself isn't in the best of straits. No, I mean, he, you know, I mean, they, they have nothing and they give everything to these kids. And, you know, then they try and get them back to their parents. And, you know, the, the ambulance driver is fascinating. His story is amazing because there's bits where he's driving through Taliban-occupied bits of the outlying outskirts of town. And you really feel it's like going into the wrong bit of, of a neighborhood in Detroit and people go, no, don't go there. This, is, this, is, this is Crips country. You don't want to be here. <laughs> and it's that same feeling of like, this is just inherently dangerous. And he goes, you know what? You've got to do it. You can't not because what happens if you don't? Right. And it's a, it's a really remarkable piece of documentary filmmaking because it's, it's about a subject you wouldn't know about. It's about people you never see talked about. It, it's this beautiful balance between the three characters who are, and there's no attempt to say, oh, there's a happy ending or there's even a resolution. It's just a period in their lives where you get to know them as individuals. And that it's, you know, it's pretty special. It's, it's very moving. Well, it's, it sounds like the type of content that a oscilloscope loves to put Oh, this is, this is, yeah. <laughs> when you said, hey, it's just, I would have looked at this from a lot of other companies and gone, oh God, depressing human rights documentary. Oh, <laughs> kill me now. But oscilloscope kind of comes with that, that, 
real feeling that they're curating their label and everything adds they to do. what it is that they're doing. You are correct. Well, the next one up we have is, uh, well, be careful. This is bad country. Oh, <laughs> indeed. I think I'd rather go up face to face with the Taliban than have to watch this again. Uh, uh, yeah, this is originally called Whiskey Bay. Which uh, would be a, which is a much better name for it. Much better oh. name. Bad country, really? I just like, okay. Uh, one of the, really the only super notable thing about this movie is that the director, Chris Brinker, who was one of the producers of um, Boondock Saints, mm-hmm. died before this finished very suddenly and relatively young in February. And so I guess that gave it a little extra bit of a push. It does have a really good cast. It's got a phenomenal cast. <laughs> Why it's so boring and by the numbers and just like has suspenseless, I don't know. Because even the story is like, this should be exciting. Yeah. I mean, this is a film that reunites Willem Dafoe and Tom Berenger, and I'm still like, an unrecognizable Tom Berenger. Oh, I yeah, to I say. was like, I had to pause it just to be sure it was Tom Berenger. It's Tom Berenger as, as Colonel Tom Parker. Yeah. Uh, it's it's really like, what? I mean, it's, it's... There's so many things about this that could make a phenomenal film. You've got Willem Dafoe as this scraggly 1980s co- undercover cop. Um... You've got Matt Dillon, who just looks like Satan, if half this is a, a, a neo-Nazi drug runner assassin. Uh, you've got Tom Berenger as this, this uh, deep south Louisiana crime boss. You've got Amy Smart. When was the last time anybody even saw her? Crank? At, probably. <laughs> um, as um, Dillon's character's wife. Um, it's you know crime in the deep south. It's pure southern gothic. And it's Neil McDonough has a play. Oh, role Neil, Ma- Neil McDonough well. is a as a corrupt lawyer, which yeah. really um, brought back memories of his uh, part as the uh, borderline moral uh, DA in the late lamented Boomtown. Great series. Well, right, that, right. that was saw. a really good show. That was a great show that should have lasted longer. Yeah, the story here is uh, it's in Louisiana, so well because any low budget film is nowadays because it's the only way you can afford to make them. These but it's actually in Louisiana, unlike you know films that are supposed to be set in Wisconsin, and you're like, sure, exactly. Why have you got swamps? Yeah, this is filmed in Louisiana, and it's in Louisiana, so that works. And William Defoe, his cover is blown undercover, but he manages lo- looking for uh, mid level gem dealers, and he ends up getting led by putting the squeeze on the guys they do get to Matt Dillon, who's a higher up contract killer. Uh, you know, not Nazi, all around douchebag. But when he's put in a position where he realizes, look, your very pregnant wife is never going to see you and your kid again. There's no way you're going to be able to get money to them. You're going to be in prison for the rest of your life. And your only way out is to help us, to help the cops and the FBI to, you know, find out who your higher level boss is and bust him. He's like, okay, well, you know, when it comes down to like, you know, the code of criminals and making sure my wife and kid don't go hungry. I'm going to take care of my wife and kid. So in an awkward turn, they try to make him into kind of an anti-hero. And I don't think it ever really completely sells. If you're going to turn a neo-Nazi into an interesting person, they have to go through some level of redemption or remorse for who they were. Like they did in American History X, which is a phenomenal film. Here... They just expect you to just go along with it, pretty much, as he ends up basically, bit by bit, reporting on the activities of his boss, Tom Berenger, who surprisingly trusts him after he is put out on bail in prison. You're like, why would you? I don't even... Okay. 
Like, there's a lot of little moments like that in here. You're like, that seems unlikely. And almost everything that happens that's supposed to be a suspenseful turn is so heavily telegraphed in the very generic plot. It's it's hard to feel surprised or emotionally involved in anything. Or anything. Anything at all. It's, I don't think the cinematography helps. This was clearly shot on digital, and it, it, you know, it's on Blu-ray, and it looks flat. There's no yeah. texture to it. Now, if you're photographing, you know, early 80s Louisiana, I want slime and grease and, you know, Some bugs in the track. <laughs> yeah, it just, there isn't anything. It's just really, it's visually flat. It's narratively flat. Even the action scenes are, are devoid of any real tension. I mean, yeah. scene, it's that sort of stuff like the bad guys will open up a clip on somebody and the the good guy, or good in quotes guy, will fire one shot and they're down. And yeah. you're like, wait, what? Just every time. It's like, look, in Star Wars is one thing, but this is supposed to be like this realistic, gritty, you know, southern gothic thriller, and I'm just not buying it. Uh, it yeah, there's too many tones trying to be struck. I mean, the cast is really good, and there's some good performances in there, but it's just, oh, it doesn't add up to anything. And I do wonder whether if the director had survived and managed to finish the process, like, you would have had like more of a vision to it. Mm. But it just doesn't really feel like it's going anywhere. And it's really sad, because you know, I'm watching this and thinking, you give me these components and a better cinematographer and a better edit, and start from the... the first principles and you could have had something that had the feel of something like uh, uh, Mississippi Burning this is a really great script with a really great cast of of serious actors doing some good work and it just doesn't come together I I don't know where everything went yeah, they should have named it War of the Handlebar Mustaches. There are some <laughs> great examples of 80s facial hair. Yes, there are. Southern 80s facial hair. You're like, really? Because I'm pretty sure nobody since Motorhead has have worn their, their facial hair that way. Yeah. William Defoe and Matt Dillon, they're going head-to-head Ooh, on it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's how they can go with this. This is the South. Lordy, lordy. Look the, at my tash. The worst thing about that is that I'm more than a little bit sure it was because they were trying to draw a comparison between the two men and say, look how similar they really are. I was like, yeah, in this particular case, it doesn't sell at all. I don't really... I, I find it trite that you're even trying to sell me on, on that. The only really weird... Well, the really truly uh, bizarre and surprising thing about this is Willem Dafoe looks really short in this film, and I don't know why. Is he, he not really short? I, he never strikes me as short, but he no. seems really short in this. He does. Maybe they hired too many tall people. I think Matt Dillon's pretty tall. Yeah, that may be uh, it. But it's just, it, it, all the way through, it's like, is he in a trench or something? It's a shame, too, because like I said, the last movie a guy makes before he dies is like, well, that sucks. Yeah. Oh well, what are you gonna do? Yeah. Uh, well, let's talk about a movie that's even that's even more depressing than that. And you didn't get to see this one, at least not recently. Oh god! I just watched this for the first time ever. <laughs> Sophie's Choice. Oh my! Oh well. Well, I just want to hear what you have to say about this because you know it is. How's the shell shock at this point? Well, the thing is, is that I always knew what Sophie's Cho- Choice was as an expression, which was based on this film. The film is not based on the expression, it's vice versa, which is being presented with this impossible choice, basically. Like, what do you do? Either there's no, there's no winning. It's a terrible choice to make. I had no idea what the choice in question in this film was going to be. And yeah, that's a lot of shell shock once you get to that point. But the, 
One of the most amazing things about this 1982 film is really the performances of a very young Meryl Streep, very young and hot Meryl Streep, who plays a Polish immigrant uh, who lives in a boarding house in Brooklyn, and then Kevin Klein, who is her kind of insane lover, and it was his first on-screen appearance. I didn't know it was his first one. It was his first huh. film film appearance. Before this, he was a very well-lauded uh, theatrical actor, yep. uh, very well-known, but this was the first time he had actually gone, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try something. I didn't realize that either till reading the notes. I was like, huh. And these two are just dynamite together. And, and every, in the literal sense of the word dynamite sometimes, because at points they are just like that couple that you wish that every relationship like you you you've had could be like just electric and always having fun and just great repartee and amazing sex. And then the other half of the time, they are like the most like, or at least he specifically is the most evil son of a bitch imaginable, just wildly jealous and just does terrible things. And all this is being witnessed by a new guy into their lives. Who's a young writer played by Peter McNichol, who has moved into this, this place, uh, his character for reasons I can't see why is named Stingo. <laughs> because <laughs> really Stingo eighties. Did your mama call you Stingo? Hey, Mrs. Stingo, can your Stingo come out to play? <laughs> Peter Nichol is an odd guy anyway. It's like, and he is so out of his league in this movie. He's probably better known for TV shows, especially in playing Tom Lennox and Ally McBeal, but, and, or, uh, uh, Janos in Ghostbusters 2. He is regal! Uh, yeah. <laughs> but this is, it's almost sad watching him because he's just, he's just like the audience. He's just sitting there watching these two just go. And the movie falters a bit when you when it starts getting in the third act and it starts becoming much more about Stingo. You're like, yeah, I don't really care about Stingo. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. I realize he's the audience avatar, but he ultimately is there for Meryl Streep to have someone to tell her stories to, and her stories are not so good. No, uh, she is was in a concentration camp and. As the story goes on, we find out there's more and more to the story until finally, towards the end, there's a very long flashback, probably about 25 minutes of the film, reveal of showing exactly what really happened that will leave you with your mouth agape. Um, I thought this was a terrific movie. Oh, it is. It's really dark, but it's also really fun at points. Um, I guess the, the most frustrating part, it's, I was even more affected by just how terrible it is this relationship between uh, Meryl Streep and Kevin Klein's characters that there there should be it should be something than what it what, what it is but the deal is is that she is so she thinks so little of herself she is so she hates herself in many ways the only light at all that keeps her you know functioning is those times when Kevin Klein's character Nathan is you know electric and alive and fun to be with you know calling her his princess and the most beautiful woman in the world because the rest of the time, she'd just rather die. And even though Stingo's like, look, you don't need this guy. He's fucking crazy. He treats you like shit half the time. It's, she'd rather die than not be with him. Uh, and it's really, it's as uh, as frustrating to Stingo at, at, and the audience equally. I mean, he is our avatar. And the very, very end will just leave you like, god damn, film. <laughs> what the fuck? I, I didn't really... This is... The street, the classic era street performance that I think has lasted best. Yeah. I mean, you know, you go back now and try and watch something like Out of Africa, and you will wonder what an 
earth the Academy was thinking that I, year. It is it is functionally unwatchable. I wondered that at the time when it came out. If, but that's... If, if, the world's worst African accents, just dismal. No, yeah. this is this is really a, a a classic piece of American cinema that is well overdue for a, a Blu-ray release. No. Oh, you're, I can't How's believe the transfer. It, uh, it looks it looks just fine. I mean, it's it probably. I mean, it's. It's very soft lit anyway. I suspect that was the way it was filmed. Um, but, uh, I, I thought it looked terrific personally. Um, I, you know, I'm not as big a nerd about these things as some of the high def sites are, but, you know, it's the best looking 1080p transfer. It's the only 1080p transfer out there. So it's the only, it's the best looking version you're going to find right yeah. now. This is what it comes down to. And this was directed by Alan J. Pacula, who is one of those names that isn't an automatic, like, is it oh, Pacula that guy. or Pacula? Does it, oh, I've always Dracula said Pac- or Dracula. I've always said Pacula, but I, I don't, don't know. know. But he did like the parallax view, Clute, um, all the president's men. All the president's men. I want to say he was a yeah he was a producer on To Kill a Mockingbird and various other films. But he's been in the industry for a very long time, uh, or was rather. And it's this is you know as a director is probably the highlight of his career. Yeah. And it was you know it's no wonder watching this that everyone came out of it going Meryl Streep and Kevin Kline two virtual unknowns at the time. Holy shit, let's give them all the roles in the world. Yep. <laughs> and they short very shortly after this appeared in The Big Chill together. Yeah. Uh, you know, with a dead Kevin Costner. <laughs> <laughs> a dead and only in the extras Kevin Costner. <laughs> yeah. Well, you do see his chest. Oh. Or at least I think it could have been any actor I suppose. It could it could have been a bag of wheat. You don't know. Yeah, it could have been anything. That's very true. Um, <laughs> which sometimes acts better than Kevin Costner. It probably does. directs better it's than indeed. him. Yeah, that, Different story. I want to see a whole baseball trilogy starring a bag of wheat. <laughs> Field of Dreams will take an entirely different meaning. <laughs> and the third act would probably be more exciting as well. Oh, oh see? Harsh. Anyway, this new version comes with, actually, I was surprised to see this has extras. Often these re-releases like this are just like, a, you know what, it's not on Blu-ray, so it's a quickie out there. But actually, this is Shout Factory putting this thing out. Well, and again, you know, like, you know, just they they just blow it out of the water every single time. And I'm surprised, I mean, I'm surprised that they put this out because this doesn't feel very much like a film they would put out, but they are... Yeah. I think they're they're realizing that Criterion is just re-releasing what it has on DVD on right Blu-ray, now, and they doing, yeah. there was a lot of great cinema out there that nobody's really doing stuff with. And I think this if this is what they're going to start doing, I, I I don't think it's going to be the expense of you know the Scream Factory stuff, which I love beyond measure, all their horror stuff. But they really know how to put a disc together. That's very true. And this one comes with a new, a brand new fucking a roundtable discussion with oh, Meryl wow. Streep, Kevin Klein, uh, and then various people like sort of like. Uh, that you're like, oh, well, why are you here? <laughs> um, like Alan J. Pacula's friend. <laughs> the widow of the original writer. You're like, okay, I'm just not really sure what you have to offer on this. But largely it's Meryl Streep and Kevin Klein talking. And it's about 45 minutes. And it is indeed interesting. And it makes you go feel really, really bad uh for Peter McNichol. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, I know he's still alive and I know he would have gladly shown up for the work if yeah. nothing else. <laughs> it's like, Although, you know, he was on Ali McBeal forever and ever and that, ever that and was, those those residuals probably still chunk in. That on was also basis. forever ago. So. Yeah, but hey, residuals. Actually, I guess he's on, what is he on now? Like Chicago Hope? Was that still on? Uh, no, I think that's, <laughs> was it Scooby-Doo Stage Fright? 
Um, he was on an episode of Agents of Shield in the Mindy Project. I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, he can't be a spring chicken. I mean, if, you know, if he's put his money away at an early uh, early point, he's yeah, probably he might have taken care of himself. But this was a minor film at the time. Like, you know, like you said, this launched a lot of careers. It did indeed. Um, and uh, this actually, even though uh, Pacula died in 1998, uh, they have a commentary on here as well from him. So pretty cool stuff. Nice. All right. Well, our last film we're talking about is the one that uh, I can't help but say would be my pick of the week. I know that that doesn't make any difference to those freaks on the other side. <laughs> but uh, that's because I like really weird cinema when it's pretty damn good. And I think that in, as an example of like sort of early David Lynchian type cinema, but with even with more of a smirk, is Escape from Tomorrow, uh, the 2013 fantasy horror film, uh, a, a debut of the writer-director Randy Moore. We actually got to, you got to talk, interview him yourself. Yeah. I did as well on uh, on uh, the, the Fantastic Fest infestation from last year. If you look through our infestation uh, page, you'll see that well back there. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's a really, really the story that everyone went to go see this because of was that it was guerrilla filmmaking at its most daring in yeah. some ways. It was these guys going in with a bunch of cameras into Disney World and um, you're not allowed to film in Disney World. And they made a whole movie there by being sneaky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the thing is that now we're far enough away from... You know, the whole fuss about, well, they got in, was it going to be releasable? You know, could you actually do it? Would Disney be able to stamp on, on you? And it turns out that all this footage they shot, I mean, they are on the right. They just wanted it with DSLRs, mm. and they were just other people with DSLRs yeah. in, in Disneyland. And, and, they, and, you know, they'd go and do the same ride four or five times, but there's lots of people who do the same ride four or five times. Uh, the only stuff they couldn't use, because uh, licensing law is like that, they couldn't use the music that they caught on the audio, so they have to come up with like fake versions of "It's a Small World." It's like yeah, it's it's a minuscule planet or something. <laughs> um, but this is about a family who go on vacation. Uh, the father, um, Roy Abramson, uh, gets fired on the phone before uh, while they're in the ho- his family was asleep in the hotel room, yeah. and it's basically just them spending the day there. With things getting increasingly weird. Yeah, he doesn't want to tell his family what happened. He just wants them to enjoy their last vacation at Disney. But his family could give a shit about him. Like, they don't care about him, even in the slightest. And he is... It's not... If he's... It's not clear entirely what's happening in the film. It's somewhat up to interpretation, even though I made a... I'm proud to say I made a suggestion to the director what I think was happening. And he said... Yeah, that's pretty much what I was doing, going for. But I, I wanted to leave it open to whoever would come up with their own idea. Nice. Which is basically that he got beheaded early on and the rest was his head that was being, like, that was grabbed by the Disney folks and was being, like, electroshocked and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like the, the basically hallucinations and fantasies of a disembodied head. Awesome. <laughs> was uh, on ice next to, next to Walt. Right. Down in the basement. Well, I mean, there's so many references to that yeah. in here. That, and, and, you know, I mean, there's, if you watch it with that in mind, you'll be like, how did I not see that the first time? You know? Um, this is, I mean, this is an incredibly dense film because Randy Moore, the director, you know, he was working through, as he, as he told both of us, he was working through a lot of family issues. Yeah. His father used to take him there when he was, when he was a small child and, then he went back later in life and suddenly realized, like, this is a weird, creepy-ass place. And But then he was working through all this family <laughs> stuff as well. And he, he pours all of this into the script. It's about Disney. It's about what Disney 
means to our culture. It's about how families interact with Disney. Um, there's references to Siemens who actually own Epcot. So you have this kind of rival corporation inside of Disney, like, like weird insurgents. Uh, the, the, you know, issues of the sexualization of the Disney princesses when they're all pretty clearly, you know, barely post pubescent. Yeah. You know, all the, there was an incredible amount in this film. And you, you know, I don't think he'll, if he can ever pull off anything like this again, it will be, Miraculous, because this is this feels like a film that is he just was working on for twenty years in his head, and then cracked his own skull open and poured it into the lens. Yeah, this is it's. I called it the the purest example of true punk cinema in years because it really is. This is a film that does not care about the rules. It's going to go and do it all on its own terms, totally DIY, and somehow it works. This could have been a disaster. A bunch of of people improving. Uh, and wandering around Disneyland and then, you know, putting in some effects in post, super cheap. It could have looked dismal. Yeah. Instead, and it looks, you it get looks something that feels like shot. the product of a ch- uh, child between repuls- repulsion era Roman Polanski and, uh, blue velvet era David Lynch yeah. coming together. It's really kind of, it's one of a kind. And yeah, I hope they manage to follow this up with something equally good because yeah this does feel like this feels like one of those films that you're like this guy had one film in and him in him and it was amazing and this was it I know, it also reminds me of vim vendors in some ways as yeah. well i mean this is it's an extraordinary piece of cinema it, it's, it's radical as all hell um you know no name talents uh but it's somehow... genuinely creepy stuff oh yeah oh uh, yeah you realize like how how much the saccharine of Disney is hiding something truly, truly unpleasant. <laughs> the sexualization of it as well. It just really, it works. And the thing about this movie is it, like I've talked to just as many people who despised it and were mad that I li- even liked it as people who felt the same way as I, as we did. And that's how it should be. This is a movie that is, you know, much like a racer head or something like that was not designed for mass acceptance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you didn't like it, Give it 20 years and go back again. Maybe you're going to be blown away by it the second time. I, you know, it is, it's, it's just not for everybody, but for those that are, I, I suspect are going to be pretty gobsmacked by it. And I, I, watching it a second time, I, my only thought was, I got to watch this a third time and see if this, see what else I'd missed and what else is hidden in there and how subtly it's put together. It's, well, you did that so you could listen to the the weird commentary. It has track. the best nuts commentary. It's got a uh, it's got a, a commentary uh, commentary track by Randy Moore, uh, and a short making of um, uh, documentary in there about how they did it and the distribution of it. But it actually also has a commentary track where it's the married couple, and they found this film at the video store, and they take it home and they're watching it, and it's them watching themselves, and they're like. This was our holiday at Disneyland. I don't understand. What's happening? This is... Why are you staring at those two young French girls? Hmm. That never happened. How did they... And, like, it's them being completely freaked out by an art house film. And it's kind of a... You know, it's kind of... Almost, I think, what they're saying is, look, we know a lot of people are going to go, oh, it's that weird Disney film. Get it home and go, I don't even know what's happening. And we're okay with that. It's, it's, you know, it's another of these meta parts of the, the film where they're going, look... 
this is weird and difficult, but some people are going to, you know, even if you're not expecting it, you'll probably get something from it. Uh, and it's also very entertaining. It's proof that, they, you know, this is a really good cast who isn't necessarily known by anybody, but they really nail that because they just sit and riff for two hours and have an argument. And every time that there's something like the, the, the husband is staring at somebody's ass inappropriately, he goes, honey, could you make me a sandwich? And she's <laughs> like, where's the soda? And he's like, yeah, we're always, oh, yeah, no, you can come back in now. It's fine. <laughs> Um, it's hugely entertaining, uh, like, and a lot more thought so. has gone into this package than you know. Who's going to go into a lot of other you know, sub hundred thousand indie films, so. or or even stuff like Bad Country? Oh that, that, yeah, that which should have been a success. Yeah, should deservedly has <sighs> no no extras because they, you know you you can only polish that particular turd. The only extra should be, hey, we didn't put it out, and <laughs> we chose to let it to I'm let so it sit. Sorry. Uh, anyway, oh, shit. I hate to tell you, but I think we're losing the signal. Although, I'm going to shout very loudly before he fades away. Um, one of the best releases that came out last week, uh, Shout put out the entirety of Hill Street Blues, all seven seasons. The seminal cop drama, the cop drama that changed television completely. Oh Between that and the ER... Everything is basically a ripoff of that. Everything evolved out of yeah. out of Yeah, I mean, it's like so many, shows. you know, this is a series, then its first episode, right at the end, they kill off two of the major characters. Uh, and then it turned out they were so popular that they were, well, no, we've got to bring them back to life now. This was almost cancelled until midway through its first season. It swept the board at the Emmys. If you've never seen this and you like Breaking Bad or you like um, Game of Thrones or you like anything that is long structured multi-character drama where there isn't one central figure but it really is a huge ensemble this is where it starts and it stands up incredibly well it does, is, it, does it have a montage of Dennis Dennis Franz calling people a turd oh yes well I mean, it, it, you know, it's got de- one of the first appearances of Dennis Franz <laughs> who then got it you know because he was so good in this in fact he appears in two different parts because he gets his first character gets killed off because he's a corrupt cop who get, who ends up dying and then they went people really responded to him let's bring him back and they brought him back as like his identical twin cousin oh my and god and then he you know they like him so much that they they put cast him NYPD blue this is a really phenomenal piece of cinema and they of television rather it's all seven seasons you can pretty much blow off buying anything else for the next few months just buy this and watch it because it really will pay off because it's about american culture in the 80s and crime and urban decay and an amazing diverse cast of actors this was on the first i think this was the first time where you had you know a black and white partners uh, cop partners and male and female cop partners and it wasn't like oh we're, we're doing something big and important it's just like you know they they all live in this small crappy neighborhood mm. you know this is really you know this is what it is and and it's aged extraordinarily well it's depressing as hades but funny in places moving just yeah just phenomenal release thank you shout for putting this out because this is this is resurrected a show that needed to be remembered. i'm embarrassed that i never actually watched that show. you never watched it oh no. man you, you you need to reach through the parallel dimension portal and grab <laughs> it all, off the uh, uh Parallel Brian's <laughs> shelves if he's got it because this this is really a it's it's phenomenal. Well, we're you from the see... same dimension. I'll just grab it off your shelf. <laughs> Wait, what's wrong? I can't hear you, Richard. What, what's happening? Discs disappearing. <laughs> I think we're losing the signal. No. Okay, that's just not right because that was my pick of the week. Okay, uh, Escape from Tomorrow was going to be my pick of the week, and they totally stole my thunder. You know what, alternate universe, Chris? 
you just go take a flying something. Well, not only that, but the, that's the giveaway we have. Oh, I'm sorry, the giveaway that we have this week, and they totally stepped on my giveaway dick. That's not cool. Not cool. Not cool, alternate us. That bloody, limey Brian Salisbury in the other dimension. I don't... Ah. Brian, are we the baddies? We might be. <laughs> we are wearing skull and crossbones. We we're both have goatees. Oh, shit. We are the evil. We're the evil twins. Oh, fuck. We're the dark universe. This is the darkest timeline. <sighs> but anyway, as I mentioned, we're giving away a copy of Escape from Tomorrow. That will not be laced with anthrax. It will not at <laughs> all, and it will... It will baffle you. It is a film that will baffle you. It is a film that will challenge you. I'm not even going to say it's a film you'll necessarily like, but you might. And I think it's it's a just the story of that film is cool enough that I'm really excited <laughs> to be able to give this away. And as you guys know, we are moving toward a or we have been doing a kind of writing prompt on Twitter. And this so what you're going to want to do in order to win your copy of Escape from Tomorrow is you're going to want to follow us at one of us net and then. Um, Tweet at us with your weirdest theme park experience. Now try and don't don't go like six tweets worth of things, but just kind of like summarize it for us. Like threw up on Mr. Toad. And 180 characters or less tell us what that was. Yes. And then just hashtag that escape giveaway and we will pick our favorite and that person will get sent a copy. Open to U.S. residents only. Thank you very much, Legalese. Sorry, rest of the world. Sorry, rest of the world. Someday we will be so rich. Someday. We'll be able to send you stuff all the time no matter what country you live in. Are you in Ulaanbaatar? We will send you a t-shirt. That's not a real place. Ulaanbaatar? I think it is. Is it? I don't know. I'll have to look it up. I'll have to watch several more episodes of uh, Where in the World is Carmen San Diego, which as a child is how I learned how countries work. Is that where Tom Hanks was from in the, the terminal? Yes. Okay. He was from Carmen San Diego. <laughs> no, no, no. The other place you said. Oh, yes. <laughs> sure. Why not? <laughs> well, that's going to do it for Digital Noise this week. Thank you so much for joining us. Chris, thank you for being you. Oh, Brian, that's the sweetest thing you've almost sort of insinuated. And don't ever push that fucking button again. No, I would never do that. Good. <laughs> Damn it. I think we are the evil ones. <laughs> Anywho, uh, you can follow us on Twitter at DigiNoiseCast or at one of us net or individually, I'm at BryGuySalisbury. I'm at Chris Cox Critic. And you can also become a subscriber to the site, which, again, is a really good idea, and you should totally do it. And you should also get us on iTunes. And you know what? While you're on iTunes, give us a five-star rating and, and leave a review. We haven't had a review in a while, and I would like to read a, I would like to read a review on, on the air. So give us, give us a review. Okay. Do it, Chris. No, no, I guess you can't. That would, that would be... <laughs> That's what i do anyway. Oh. Hmm. Wait. Then how do we have two negative reviews? That was you, wasn't it? Wasn't me. Damn it, Chris. I must have, I, I, it's not my fault. I have a goatee. <sighs> anyway, I'm going to close out the show like I always do, reminding you that no release is too big, no release is too small. From Criterion to Catastrophe, we review them all. <laughs>